WORT Summer Festival is coming. Join us at Warner Park on Sunday, May 21st from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. We'll have a wide variety of live music. We'll also have food and craft vendors, an arts activity area, and plenty of space in beautiful Warner Park. Find out more information at WORTFM.org. See you there. This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. State legislators have signed off on accepting settlement money from another lawsuit against opioid manufacturers and distributors. Today, the state's budget committee signed off on accepting over $324 million for the role five national companies played in facilitating the opioid crisis. 30% of that money will head to the state, with the other 70% heading to county governments, refilling coffers already spent on interventions and efforts to curb the crisis. The settlement accepted today is separate from the other settlement money against other opioid manufacturers and distributors that was signed off on by legislators last year. That wasn't the only move by the state's Joint Finance Committee today, though. We'll have more about its slow walk toward building the next state budget in a few minutes. Hospitals don't have to provide medically ineffective treatments if requested by patients, the Wisconsin Supreme Court ruled today. The case stems from the family of a patient who sued a Milwaukee hospital for their refusal to administer ivermectin as a COVID-19 treatment, reports the Associated Press. Today's decision upholds a decision by an appeals court that decided medical providers don't have to give treatments that they determine are unscientific or substandard. Today's ruling was by a 6-to-1 majority, with a dissent by conservative justice Rebecca Bradley. A second Dane County Board Committee has unanimously recommended against hiring State Representative Sheila Stubbs as the head of the county's biggest department. Last night, the County Board's Committee on Personnel and Finance rejected Stubbs' nomination, saying she did not demonstrate adequate management experience to lead the county's Department of Human Services. That department is responsible for a $240 million budget and about 800 employees. The position description for the vacant permanent director position lists an annual salary of about $181,000, reports the Wisconsin State Journal. It's the latest in a political fight that has led to strife between the Board of Supervisors, the County Executive, and supporters of Stubbs. Last week, the Dane, Dane County's Committee on Health and Human Needs, which Stubbs once chaired as a County Supervisor, also unanimously rejected her for the job. That meeting, as well as previous conversations between Stubbs supporters and County Supervisors, was laden with fraught language and racial epithets. The issue now heads to the full Dane County Board at its meeting this Thursday. Happy May! Are you mowing your lawn this month? A handful of communities across the state are again celebrating No Mow May, a recent movement started in Wisconsin that's intended to help pollinators in the early days of spring. This month, the city of Madison is instead celebrating Low Mow May. Madison officials encourage mowing your lawn twice this month instead of every 7 to 10 days. Under city ordinance, property owners must keep their grass below 8 inches or face an inspection and, if still not mowed after a notice period, a fine of $187 on first offense. However, the city says that rule will also not be enforced this month. And now on to today's top stories.
Hundreds of students gathered at the Wisconsin State Capitol today to demand driver's licenses and in-state tuition for people who are not yet citizens. WORT reporter Abigail Levins reports on the rally. Hundreds of students from Madison East, West, and La Follette High Schools and UW-Madison walked out of school today. The walkout was part of a two-day action by Voces de la Frontera, Wisconsin's immigrant rights organization. They had several demands. They called on the Biden administration to use his executive powers to protect immigrants. They called on Republican state lawmakers to allow driver's license and in-state tuition for immigrants. And they called on school boards to adopt school lunch reform. Students marched for over two miles this morning, from East High School to the Capitol Rotunda. There, students spoke for over an hour about their experiences as immigrants in Wisconsin. A key issue, restoring driver's licenses for all. In 2007, the state legislator took away the ability for non-citizens to obtain a driver's license. That can impact those who do not have citizenship status and threaten their ability to go to work or go to school. Jasmine Alvarado Reyes, a student speaker, talked about her excitement to get a driver's license. But she says her immigrant status took that away. The evil said, unfortunately, at this time, we're not offering a position at driver's ed scholarship program. I hope you have a successful finish to the school year and a great summer. Reading that made me angry, made me feel so rejected. My eyes got watery, but I, but I hold back my tears. But this setback did not stop her from protesting. I wasn't going to let them win. Mickey Mestiza, another speaker, said people try to tell immigrants that they don't belong in this country. They try to make them a dreamer, telling immigrants that their goals are only dreams and they will never happen. Make us feel that shame is the shame that we feel because of the way you treat us. They called for democracy for everyone. This is to our government. And I say our because it's mine too. Even if you want to deny me rights. Because this is democracy. And I'm pretty sure I'm actively participating. Speaker Christina Newman said the Joint Finance Committee was meeting as they spoke to strike items from the governor's budget. One of those items, driver's licenses for immigrants. Newman encouraged the crowd to chant so the Republican lawmakers could hear them. Republicans, what do we want? Primitivo Torres, a coordinator with Voces de la Frontera, says the organization will continue to push for driver's licenses. Because that item was taken from the budget, they will look to pass a bill that allows driver's licenses for immigrants. Stephanie Salgado, an organizer of today's event, says uniting for this issue is important. She says she used to be afraid of protests, but she was inspired to act. As you can see, these are real stories. Even if it doesn't affect you, you know of someone that affects. Even if it's not your reality, you know it's the reality of others. And that's why we're standing here in solidarity with one another. Protesters also called on Biden to fulfill his campaign promise to abolish the 287-gram program and expand temporary protected status and other protections for immigrants already living here. And they had demands for Wisconsin school boards to champion fresh, healthy, and equitable school lunch as part of the school lunch justice campaign. Today was the second of a two-day May Day action. Yesterday, Voces de la Frontera 
led a march to the Milwaukee downtown DMV to also advocate for driver's licenses. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Abigail Levins. As hundreds of students spoke in the Capitol's rotunda today, the state's powerful Republican-controlled Joint Finance Committee met under the same roof to cut over 500 budget items proposed by Governor Tony Evers. WRT producer Nate Wegehout has more. Along with axing a proposal to restore driver's licenses for non-citizens, the Republican-led Budget Writing Committee stripped 544 other items from Governor Evers' budget proposal. Items on the chopping block ranged under a swath of funding areas, housing, clean energy and environmental justice, water quality, child welfare, election funding, Medicaid expansion, public health, behavioral health, food share, law enforcement grants, legislative records, medical marijuana, PFAS standards, and many, many more. Republicans voted to revert the budget back to its base form, meaning the budget they will be billing off going forward is the state's last budget and not the budget proposed by Governor Evers. Republican Representative Mark Bourne of Beaver Dam is the co-chair of the Joint Finance Committee and said in a press conference before the Joint Finance meeting that Governor Evers' proposed budget was unrealistic. He found a way to raise taxes $200 billion but still end up with that massive structural problem with all the reckless spending. So as the Senator said, we'll toss that aside. We'll work from base from last year's budget. Craft a budget that's for all of Wisconsin. And we'll do it in the way that um, won't be a surprise to anyone, I think. Evers' budget would have increased state spending by more than 17 percent as lawmakers continue to debate how the state's over $7 billion budget surplus should be spent. Minority Democrats on the Joint Finance Committee blasted their Republican colleagues for the cuts. Representative Evan Goike, a Democrat of Milwaukee on the JFC, says that young people are moving away from Wisconsin and that it's their job to find ways to bring them back. This is a growth budget. This invests in people. We need to grow, frankly. From 2010 to 2020, Wisconsin had the slowest population growth in any decade in our state's history. I respect the question. But there is also a cost associated with not acting and not investing in our people because people are voting with their feet. Today's cuts were just the first round of changes to Evers' proposed budget. The Joint Finance Committee will meet again this Thursday for more budget deliberations. It's Governor Evers' third budget proposal as governor. All three proposals have been widely stripped by a Republican-led legislature. Once both the Senate and Assembly pass the budget later this summer, the budget will go back to Evers' desk, where he can veto either individual parts or the entirety of the budget. If no budget is agreed on by July 1st, state spending will continue at levels set in the current budget. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggie-Hout. UW-Madison students are calling out another student who used racist rhetoric in a video that later circulated online. WORT reporter Jessica Lindahl has this report on the aftermath. The video started circulating on social media Monday evening, and already it's drawn organized actions from students and UW-Madison officials. In the video, a female student jokes about slavery practices and uses of racial epithets, clearly targeting the black community. The video gained ground with repostings by UW-Madison students, sharing their anger towards the creator and the sentiments behind the video. This pushback inspired change by some students as a link for an online petition started circulating with the call-to-action posts. The petition calls to expel the student and was posted yesterday afternoon on change.org. 
For Anchorage students, their overwhelming support of the issue shows, as of 4.30 p.m., it has received over 15,000 signatures. Inspired by the collective action is Endemasia Focum, a third-year student at UW-Madison studying landscape and urban studies and geography. Taking to social media about this overt racism, she wrote about how the video frustrated her. It's in all these little things that the students of color, particularly black students, feel every day. But it's hard to, like, describe. And it's hard to put in terms that, like, that articulate it well. But I guess I just had, I just had so many questions <laughs> for her. I, at UW, we take an ethnic studies class. We have an ethnic studies requirement to graduate. Um, a lot of students, that's their first exposure to African-American history if they choose to take an African-American history course. Um, and I wanted to know, you know, have you taken yours yet? Where does this come from? Why? Just, just a big question of like, why? Focum says there is a lack of visibility for the black community on the campus and that underrepresentation contributes to the lack of education among the student body. It's like insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. It's frustrating to continue to have these incidents and have communities on the margins of all different sorts of things being pushed to continue to educate an unwilling to learn and an unwavering white population on this campus and an unwavering administration on this campus. In a statement from the University of Wisconsin-Madison to the campus community posted last evening, campus administrators offered a tepid response. In the statement, administrators said they, quote, were unaware of the video and its deeply harmful and offensive racist slurs and references, unquote. UW added that while racial slurs do not represent campus values, they, quote, can't limit what students and employees post to their personal social media accounts and can't take action against posts that are not unlawful. They also encourage students to access support resources and to fill out the university's bias and hate reporting form. The latest publicly available hate and bias report form from UW-Madison administration is from fall 2020, four semesters ago, not including the spring 2023 semester. In that 2020 report, there were 52 reports of hate and bias incidents reported. When categorizing these reports, microaggressions was the largest descriptor with 28 reports. WORT asked the Dean of Students Office why the past four semesters of hate and bias reports are not available. According to spokesperson Greg Bump, the posting of bias reports publicly was discontinued in 2020 due to staffing disruptions during the pandemic. Now, bias reports must be requested through an open records request. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Jessica Lindahl. According to the Center for Disease Control and Prevention, black infant mortality rates in Wisconsin are some of the highest in the nation. To address this disparity, the Foundation for Black Women's Wellness launched their Connect RX program last year. Working in conjunction with the Dane County Healthy Council, the project aims to connect black mothers with medical and community resources to assure the health of their children. One year into the program, WRT producer Nate Wuggiehout spoke with Gabe Doyle, Chief Health Initiatives Officer with the Foundation, to talk about what they found. Tell me about that program a little bit. What does ConnectRx aim to do and how does it work to accomplish those goals? 
So the Dane County Health Council, uh, you know, has a real aim of trying to eliminate or reduce the disparities between black and white birth outcomes in Dane County. We have one of the, we're, we're a city that is routinely ranked as a top tier place to be born, to grow, to ed- be educated, to raise a family, um, and even in 2020, a place to retire, which I'm not sure that folks understand. We have winters here, uh, so I'm not sure how we got the retirement, uh, best place to retire. But we're a top tier community, and we certainly, with four high quality healthcare systems in place, and uh, an outstanding federally qualified health center in access, most people should feel the ability to have not only access to high-quality care, but to also be listened to. And so during those Saving Our, Baby, uh, Saving Our Babies community listening sessions and really um, hearing black women say, uh, once I leave appointments or once I get connected to one person, I end up having to get connected to three or four more other people to share my story over and over. It was really upon the Dane County Health Council to create many solutions. And one of those solutions was to create a more coordinated, comprehensive ecosystem of trusted supports identified by black women and their families, but then also make it efficient for the individual and the providers to have that high quality care, but centered around black women uh, unique needs. And so we knew we had a few assets at the table, uh, like an electronic health record, which documents all of the efforts that the medical team has provided. And we had this belief that if we could connect a small ecosystem of trusted supports and infuse that into the medical record, that the, not only the provider would be having a better, more um, educated conversation with the, with the expecting mother, Uh, during their perinatal uh, journey, but we also knew that the mother would be connected to the right resources that would make a difference in the day-to-day quality of life, hopefully setting a trajectory and a healthy birth outcome, but then a trajectory for her her newborn baby to be able to enter into this world in in a healthy way. And so that care coordination model is really rooted in, uh, in here locally in Dane County, we use EPIC. And so by partnering with the health system and then working with EPIC, we were able to utilize their software to, in, to add in not only 13, uh, I think it's 13, but about 13 community-based organizations from mental health to housing to food security to the Foundation for Black Women's Wellness and our doula collective. And uh, it allows us to receive referrals, all of these community-based organizations, let us document that we've accepted those referrals and then be able to communicate back to the teams at the respected health systems to say what the outcomes of those referrals are. In addition to that, it's a screening process. So the technology and infrastructure is there, but every pregnant woman now will get screened for the social determinants of health, regardless of their background, race, demographic, socioeconomic status. If you are a black uh, woman or birthing person and you screen positive for one of five key social determinants of health factors, then you qualify for what we call as ConnectRx Wisconsin. Not only will you then receive the standardized high-quality care at one of our health system partners during your perinatal journey, but you will also be offered at no cost to you a community health worker and a doula. And we understand that having culturally reflective and culturally safe care teams 
have shown pretty promising results to be vital. Uh, and they're vital, but they're also the determining factor on how patients are experiencing a more positive uh, perinatal journey with their care team. And so uh, in our first, and so once that starts taking place, we are mobilizing a care team in, inclusive of community-based uh, employees who can go in home, have uh, conversations around not only your birth desires, but then also being able to help translate any health literacy challenges that are going on between provider and client. The doulas and community health workers can also be present during the birth. Uh, they obviously make visits both prenatal and postpartum and really support not only the social but medical influences on health. Um, and that is all being captured within the electronic health record. And now this program has been going on for about a year now. What have you seen so far? Yeah, it's, it's pretty exciting. We've screened over 3,000 pregnant women in this community. We've supported um, uh, out of that. And again, just uh, reminding that this is not just a, a screening of just black patients. This is screening all black or all women and birthing people who come through our health systems in Dane County. Um, out of that, we have been able to support 400 families with resources and have had uh, 85 and have supported 85 healthy births. And so that's just kind of the raw numbers around it. What another thing that is really uh, exciting is that we are hearing uh, success stories from doctors, nurses, and other care team members in the, in the perinatal world uh, explicitly sharing how, uh, how much of a, a benefit it was to the overall experience and the birth outcome by having the doula and the community health worker present for labor and delivery and supporting the client outside of the clinic walls. When we also look at some of the hard numbers of the doula-supported births, 90% of the doula-supported births, have been, have, the baby has reached, uh, the mother has reached uh, optimal gestational age. 80 plus percent of the babies born have been born to a healthy birth weight. And 70 plus percent of, uh, of, of birthing people uh, have been able to avoid uh, medical interventions like inductions or C-sections. These numbers weren't present uh, five years ago, 10 years ago. And these were some of the driving factors that were creating the disparities um, across Dane County, Wisconsin, and the Midwest. And so we know that um, this is just year one. This is early uh, data that we're collecting and starting to report out on. We've partnered with the University of Wisconsin's Population Health Institute, um, and the foundation has a data and research uh, uh, person who is working closely with them as well to really put out a, a full evaluation plan that is multimodality and really dives deep into the patient and provider experiences across the perinatal landscape. But for early indicators after year one, seeing, you know, 90% of birthing people reaching gestation, optimal gestational age is making us at the Health Council very excited. Um, and certainly when we think about birth weights and avoiding um, things like C-sections, inductions, which have lasting impacts and are uh, disproportionately offered to uh, black and brown uh, women and birthing people, we're knowing that we're creating a, a standard of care that is aiming for excellence. And we want our model to be modeled throughout Wisconsin and let others across this country lean into what can happen when you center black women's voices and design care uh, uh, to meet their unique needs. 
I've been talking with Gabe Doyle, Chief Health Initiatives Officer with the Foundation for Black Women's Wellness, about the Connect Rx program. Gabe, thank you so much for talking with me. Thank you so much for having us. A quick correction to an earlier story. UW Madison is aware of the video posted to social media containing racial slurs. WORT erroneously stated that the university was unaware. Time is now 6.33, and you're listening to the local news on WORT. I'm Sarah Hopeful, here with Christian Knudsen. Thanks for joining us. Every Tuesday, we check in with the Daily Cardinal for the latest news from the UW-Madison campus. This week on the Cardinal Call, producer Madeline Afonso catches up with the springtime happenings on campus. Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Madeline Afonso. The Daily Cardinal's spring farewell print issue came out last Thursday. This week, I'm going to talk through some of the clips in the issue and what's in news on campus during the final week of the semester. More than 90 years of the Terrace, events, music, and more this summer. With over 800,000 visitors every summer, The Memorial Union Terrace is gearing up for another busy season with new music, food, and more. The University of Wisconsin community got a sneak peek into the wonders of the Terrace season last week when over 2,000 iconic sunburst chairs returned the same week Madison was bathed in high temperatures and sunshine. With the warm weather comes summer concerts on the Terrace, hosting a variety of live music every Wednesday through Sunday during the summer season. Some bands have been playing the Terrace for decades, while others are just stopping in town for the night. A Madison favorite is returning to the Terrace this summer for the first time since 2019, Natty Nation, Madison's premier reggae band. Pat McCurdy, UW alum, who had a one-man band as a student and never stopped, has been playing the Terrace for over 30 years. After finding incredible success last year, there will be three Lakefront Live nights on Lake Mendota this summer. On the first Thursday of each month of summer, bands will play facing the lake rather than the terrace. Hoofers will be hosting free water equipment to rent so patrons can enjoy the show in the water. Kayaks, stand-up paddleboards, and even floaties will be available. There are also movies at the terrace every Sunday night, however, the schedule is yet to be set. Students can get involved with event planning by applying to various Wisconsin Union directorate positions. There are 11 committees and six outdoor clubs involved with planning the terrace season that students can get involved with. Whether community members come for the music, beer, weather, arts, or food, days and nights spent at the terrace have been enjoyed since 1929. The terrace has almost a century of history contributing to Madison history, including its vibrant art and music scene. UW-Madison's new environmental engineering major sparks interests. The University of Wisconsin-Madison introduced environmental engineering last year as a new major. Prior to this, the subject was solely a branch of the civil engineering major. The purpose behind the split had to do with enrollment purposes following in the footsteps of other Big Ten universities and listening to the requests of engineering students on campus. The implementation of the new major has come with two additional classes, but has otherwise left the curriculum fairly similar to what it was when housed in the civil engineering program. One new major requirement is the materials class. 
UW-Madison is one of the only universities that offers and requires this type of course. The motivation behind the creation of the course stems from events such as the water crisis in Flint, Michigan, as if the pipes had not been created using lead, the crisis would not have occurred. Before the establishment of the major, there was an organization on campus that allowed students to explore the field of environmental engineering. The Environmental Engineering Club was founded in 2016 as a way for students to learn more about different career paths, research, and experts' experiences in the field through guest speakers. The current presidents have worked to grow the club from a few consistent members attending meetings to 15 to 30 attendees. They emphasized the importance of understanding what environmental engineering is, as well as the vast number of places the major's implications can be found throughout the world. UW-Madison Engineering Expo sparks curiosity in younger students. Last month's solely student-run Engineering Expo event brought in an estimated 4,500 to 5,500 attendees over its two days in late April, where younger students and the public could interact with and learn from various exhibitions and displays put on by the School of Engineering. Exhibitions included a makeshift Mars rover, concrete canoes, and model hearts, all spanning throughout UW-Madison's engineering campus, they were all scaled down to a middle school level of content for the younger students visiting. The expo first began in 1940 and changed over the years to its current form as a two-day event. One day is reserved for invited schools, the other is open to the public. Attendance on both days is free of charge. Around 1,500 students were invited the first day and there were an estimated 3,000 to 4,000 attendees the next day. The planning process was a year-long effort by the 14 students on Engineering Expo's executive board. Selecting themes for the exhibitions was an old tradition the current executive board brought back after going through 1990s booklets advertising the event. This year's theme, Environmental Sustainability, was selected to coincide with the weekend of Earth Day. In preparation, executive members reached out to student organizations potentially interested in showcasing their work and relied on industry connections and sponsors to run the event. The College of Engineering's response, particularly toward providing lecture hall space, has been one of acceptance and appreciation, with the Dean of College encouraging professors to either cancel their class or find a different area to host it online so that the expo can happen on campus. In other campus news, UW-Madison responds to social media video containing racial slurs. A University of Wisconsin-Madison student was recorded in a recent video using racial slurs and references directed at the Black community. University officials said the video did not reflect the university's values in a statement on Monday. The video gained traction after being posted to multiple social media platforms Monday. In the video, the student in question issued multiple racial slurs and comments target at the Black community and other people can be heard laughing in response. It's unclear when this video was first posted to social media. UW Madison issued a statement Monday evening regarding the video, saying the university is aware of a video recently posted to social media that contains deeply harmful and offensive racist slurs and references. The Dean of Students Office is gathering information, collecting bias reports, and offering support to affected students and employees. Student and employee content posted on private social media accounts is not subject to regulation by the university, and the university cannot take actions against posts that are not unlawful. But the university added that racial slurs 
do not represent or reflect UW-Madison values. Charles Lee Isbell Jr. to become new UW-Madison provost. Isbell succeeds John Carl Schultz, who accepted the position of president at the University of Oregon in March. Isbell will become the second-ranked university leader under Chancellor Jennifer Mnookin on August 1st. Eric Wilcotts, Dean of UW-Madison's College of Letters and Sciences, is currently serving as the university's interim provost. Isbell, the current Dean of the College of Computing at Georgia Tech, researches machine learning and artificial intelligence in a field he describes as interactive artificial intelligence. He graduated from Georgia Tech in 1990, attained his PhD at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology's AI Lab in 1998, and eventually returned to Georgia Tech for research after several years in the industry. Outside of computing and university administration, Isbell created an online black history database. He also reviews hip-hop and funk music on his personal website and plays Ultimate Frisbee and reads sci-fi comics. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been the Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. Enterprise and Economic Development Kitchens, or Feed Kitchens, is a project of the Madison Northside Planning Council. Located on North Sherman Avenue, it's a space where Madison food startups can get a foothold. WRT contributor Tony Castaneda has been interviewing some tenants of Madison Feed Kitchens. In this inaugural episode, we speak with Josie Chu, a local condiments producer who specializes in representing the flavors of Singapore, Malaysia, and Indonesia. Originally from Singapore, Josie Chu is the owner and chef of Madame Chu's Delicacies, which is produced at Madison's Feed Kitchen's Northside facility. Madame Chu's Delicacies produces Southeast Asian condiments for sale at local markets in the Madison area. In this segment of the Feed Kitchen's community media project, Josie addresses food waste and her approach to sustainable and environmentally conscientious food production. Health food. People who, are, who shops at co-op, who reads labels, will recognize that our product really will meet their dietary needs rather than products that are filled with unreadable ingredients. All that preservatives, I understand it helps to keep the food safe. However, if you can keep food safe without using preservatives, that is even better. And really, the technique is handed down from generations. Look at our grandparents. They don't eat food that is filled with preservatives because they don't know chemistry to begin with. So they were able to use different methods of preserving the condiments and serving it to the family well, you know, not getting anybody sick. That technique is lost in huge manufacturing because for every jar of condiments, if they can manufacture it and fill it and produce it in less than two seconds, that is profit-making to them. 
we small business, we made in small batches. Does that mean that, you know, it'll take us only two seconds to fill? No, it fill, it takes a longer time because we use a slow cooking method without having to add preservatives. And each jar, I will have to say, it takes at least, including cooking time, 10 minutes. So per batch of product that we make is at least four to six hours. But at the same time, we are sacrificing what? The time for benefits outweighs the bad ingredient that goes into every jar. What are your concerns about food waste? As a small food manufacturer, I am really, really concerned with the amount of food waste. For instance, to make chili pepper, um, California has to grow tons of chili. For us, we use those chili pepper, but at the same time, being a conscientious and environmentally friendly food processor, I would make them in small batches. Why? Because I use what is needed for our product, for our processing, so that our product is not sitting on the shelf for over two years, and then it expires, and then the product has to be thrown away. So we use what we need for our process when we have an order from our retail uh, vendors, we try to have them made and try to process them as soon as we can. So it goes on the shelf fresh, customer buys them, and then we don't have tons of product that goes to waste, that goes into the trash because of expiration date, because the product sits, for instance, in the refrigerator, well, it comes in from the grocery, um, from the buyer itself, the, from our supplier, and then it goes bad and we have to toss them. So all that is what you call a responsible food manufacturer. A responsible food manufacturer makes food, makes the product in small batches, when it's, done, when it's used up, when there's an order coming in, or when there's an anticipation of another order based on some pattern of, of uh, customer use, then we make that product. We don't want to make huge batch and then have to toss them out. Such an unconscionable behavior, such an unconscionable action. And I think that, you know, we cannot expect food grower to supply us and then we throw them out into the trash because it goes bad, because expiration date expires. We don't need all that waste. We can start to think how to be a sustainable, environmentally conscious food manufacturer. What is the shelf life of your condiments? It's about two years. This model of small-scale production, is this something that you think you could sustain your business? So, like I said, um, during the pandemic, it was very difficult for us, you know, for our small business. So we were unable to do as many small batch processing as we like. Now, to answer your questions, small batch processing, is it the model? Well... 
big manufacturers is to be, to go big. I would have to find a co-packer. Small batch processing is really not something that if I want to grow nationwide, because small batch processing to grow nationwide, I would have to be at feed kitchen or build my own facility. And have that runs twenty four seven to be able to source all the peppers, the ginger, the garlic, and all that. That is also another level. Um, small batch processing at this point is where we are at. So that is why when you ask me earlier about you know my, the market where we like we like to be. We would like to be in co-ops, as many co-ops in the state of Wisconsin, as well as neighboring state as we can. And that really is how far we would like to grow. Beyond that, I would have to sacrifice the quality of the product to the quantity, to the mass production. And that has never been our goal. Um, Quantity does not outweigh quality. We've been speaking with Josie Chu, and uh, she is the owner of Madame Chu Delicacies uh, right here in Madison, Wisconsin. She's also a tenant of the Feed Kitchens here on the north side of Madison. Thank you very much for uh, for doing this interview. Thank you for having me here, Tony. Okay, thank you. This has been a production of the Madison Feed Kitchens Community Media Project and sponsored by the Northside Family Planning Council. Tonight on Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg offers an update on all the critters in the care of the Dane County Humane Society's Animal Rehab Center. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week, we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today I wanted to give a really fun update about the Wildlife Center. We have had some really great cases come through our facility here in the last few days and had some really nice patient stories that I thought would be exciting to share here on WRT on our wildlife segment. So first, I wanted to say that we have about 21 patients that are currently in care right now, which is not very many. We've had a bit of a slow start to our spring, so being May now, we're about to hit our baby boom. But the types of species that we have in care right now include a whole mixture of different songbirds. We've got some ducklings. We have a lot of raptors. And so there have been some really fun cases here. We have a beautiful red-winged blackbird male who was hit by a car out in the Mount Horeb area. And that bird is recovering well in our avian room after puncturing an air sac and having a potential fracture. We have a couple of fledgling morning doves, so baby doves that have come in for various reasons, one from hitting a window, another from being accidentally grabbed by a dog and having a radius fracture. Those two little ones are being tube fed every couple of hours throughout the day and are living with an adult morning dove who's also in care for some spinal trauma and fractures. We have a beautiful purple finch, which I haven't seen in our wildlife center for quite a few years now because 
typically we see house finches. This beautiful purple finch also hit a window and had air sacs that were ruptured. They have what's called subcutaneous emphysema, which is air underneath the skin. So they kind of puff up like a balloon, which is somewhat difficult to manage, but usually with cage-rest time and pain medications, those birds do recover. We have just a really adorable American kestrel male who came in after being hit by a car in the Dodge County area. That bird has a pubis fracture and a keel fracture, but is recovering really well in our indoor facility. We have two Cooper's hawks, one that is outside currently and the other one that is in our raptor room, both of which had different types of trauma, but one that's definitely about to be released. And the other one that is eh, still, you know, touch and go has some, you know, major spinal trauma that has made it difficult for that bird to stand and to walk. So it might be a long term case for that bird. We have a white-throated sparrow and a ruby-crowned kinglet that are on to be released by next week, along with a yellow-bellied sapsucker. We got some really great donations of maple sap from the uh, Maple Valley Cooperative, who helps us out during the busy season uh, to provide pure maple sap that actually comes from the natural trees around here, um, mostly in the kind of western part of the state, but they're a co-op throughout Wisconsin. So they donate some of that sap that we're able to freeze in ice cube trays and use it for species like sap suckers who really rely on that because that would be their normal food source. We've also got our blue jay that had a beak fracture, and that beak fracture has taken many, many weeks to heal here, but is looking really great. So still outside in our flight pens, but getting ready for release. Our last gray squirrel of the season from the winter, he was overwintered with our program, is going to be released next week. So also super awesome. Turkey vulture that came in a little while ago, um, mid-April, but has high lead toxicity. Um, so that's one we talk about a lot in our, our field of rehabilitation because we see so many species that come down with it. This turkey vulture not only had ingested some form of lead shot from likely eating on a gut pile with something that had lead spray in it, but was also shot, unfortunately. So, you know, birds, sometimes turkey vultures especially, are thought of as buzzards in a lot of places, but, you know, they are protected species here in the United States, so it's not legal to shoot them. Um, so those are the types of cases we have to refer to other agencies like the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service as illegal activity. So that bird is recovering, but it's very slow going because the lead toxicity was very, very high in the 200 to 300 microgram per deciliter, which if you were talking 200 to 300, we consider high lead toxicity to be over 10. That's a huge amount for a poor vulture who are very sensitive to lead toxicity. But then my favorite ones are our little mallards. We have three little hatchling mallards that came from the Janesville area. And it was a really interesting case where they were stuck down a storm drain and kind of dropped off near a library and they were able to be rescued. And it's uh, great to have them in our little Sundance Center enclosures. Uh, the Sundance Center is a building that was donated by a number of people in the community. It helped us to build a, a building strictly for our ducklings in the summer. And they are thriving in the last couple of days, which has been great. And then last but not least, I wanted to share this really awesome story. And this is kind of a silly one, but shout out to Middleton Ford out on the west side who called about a morning dove nest that had been uh, found on someone's car that was being serviced in the morning a couple days ago. Sounds as if the mom was present. Uh, they just didn't know what to do with the nest with the babies inside. And one of the employees was talking back and forth with us over the phone. It was just an amazing act of kindness 
and I think just kudos above and beyond most other people for what they would do. But they were able to park a truck in the same exact spot where that car was that had the original nest. And now mom is going to be able to take care of her babies on top of a different vehicle for the next couple of weeks until they fly away. But they were willing to leave that truck there until she was done. And that is really amazing, outstanding service. So very cool story. I'm very glad and to have, you know, positive relationships like that in the community. And we thank all for helping all of these different wild animals that we have at the facility and for all the ones that you are going to find ultimately coming up here into the busy season. So that's our segment today, just an update about the Wildlife Center and sharing some great stories, different patients that we have in rehabilitation. So if you have any questions or you find a sick, injured, or orphaned animal, please give us a call at 608-287-3235. And this has been Wildlife Weekly. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your reporters were Abigail Levins and Jessica Lindahl. Tonight was Jessica's last day as our reporting intern, so thank you, Jessica. Special thanks to feature contributors Tony Castaneda, Jackie Sandberg, Madeline Afonso, and the editorial staff of the Daily Cardinal. Super Dave Lawrence engineered the show. Nate Wegehout produced this newscast. And Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. Stay up to date with the WORT Local News Podcast and subscribe wherever you follow the latest podcasts. And I'm your host, Christian Knutson. Up next is Spanish Language News with the Nuestro Patio. Good night. <laughs>